0: Father we're grateful that you have brought us together again this morning and we're thankful that you have ministered to us in the word and in our singing and our worship together I pray that now as we move into this time of teaching we know Lord who the great teacher is and we look to you Holy Spirit even on this Trinity Sunday to open our minds and our hearts to perceive the wonders of your law your truth of your instruction to us and I. Pray that you'll bring clarity to the teacher and to those who are here to listen, and and we know in advance that if any of that happens, it will be because of your kindness in descending to us to speak, and we ask these things in anticipation and in the name of Jesus, amen. I um just reflecting a bit on, oh, for those of you who weren't here last week, um, we're in a, the middle of a two-week series on Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the so-called faith chapter. I, I was re- reflecting a little bit on this text again this week and, and thinking about this morning and the talk that we had last week. You know, one of the... Um, I, I teach students. Um, uh, matter of fact, I start a class tomorrow. You know, I teach students about the Bible and what it means to read the Bible and what it means to teach the Bible and interpret it and to preach it. That, that's, the, that's, how I, you know, that's how I pay the bills. Um, And uh, I, I I was just reminded that, you know, one of the great strengths of the better interpreters of the Bible, of those who teach the Bible and teach it well, I do think, at least in my own experience, that one of the great strengths of those, if I were to put them together and make some sort of qualitative analysis of them, it's probably the fact that they know how to get out of the way of the text the best and let it do its work. Um, in other words, they, they, they recognize that there is an authority and a power in these words themselves. And my job as an interpreter is to try and help people clear the riffraff a bit so that they can have better access to the text itself. That that's the great strength. And and a, a chapter like Hebrews eleven doesn't need a lot of interference to be run for it. You know, in other words, we we, we probably could just read this text out loud. Um, and then get into the first couple of verses of chapter 12 and say, you know, have a good day. You know, I, I, that was powerful, isn't it? Um, let's reflect on that and may the Lord use it to change our hearts and our minds. And that I, Hebrews 11 has that kind of punch to it. Um, for those of you who weren't here last week, we, we dove right in. I brought my King James version last week. I didn't, I didn't bring it this week. I um, brought my revised version this week. But brought the King James version last week because I like... The way in which Hebrews chapter eleven verse one is translated in the King James, I still have this memorized from childhood. Faith is the substance, the things hoped for; it's the evidence of things not seen. Now, um, faith is the substance of things hoped for. And 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 again, um, one of the things that I think we all struggle with in our reading of the Bible and are trying to understand the Bible and to come to terms with it. One of the dangers that we face, especially with texts, I think, like Hebrews chapter 11, for some of us is the danger of over-familiarity. The familiarity breeds contempt, the old adage goes, right? I mean, we, we know this text, and we can just rattle some of these things off. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. At least in my world, of my upbringing, I've known this text for a very long time and have and taught this text before, but it, it seized me in preparation for last week the significance of the grammar of this verse. It does not say we put our faith in the substance of what we hope for. It doesn't say that we put our faith in the evidence of things that we don't see. What the verse says is very clearly with that use of the verb to be It connects, for you English people out here, right? It connects a noun and a predicate together in a co-equal status. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the evidence of things that aren't seen. Um, In other words, it's faith that brings a future reality The future promises of God, and this is at the center, I believe, of Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll get to this in due course. But faith is that means, it's that good gift. We heard um, Canon Schneider this morning emphasize the fact that we can't make being born again happen, right? We don't do that. That is something that happens outside of ourselves by the good grace of God to enliven us to something. We would say the same thing here in relationship to that about faith, Faith is not something that we generate internally. Faith is a good gift that's given to us by God, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. What is the it that's the gift of God? It's faith itself that is the gift of God. And it's faith, that spirit-generated gift inside of our hearts, that's not measured by its quality, Or its quantity, but it's measured by its object, right? That's why it seems like Jesus' favorite metaphors for faith tend to be very small uh, matters, like mustard seeds. With the faith the size of a mustard seed, great things can happen. Well, mustard seeds are small. I believe Jesus is making a rhetorical point there. It's not about the size of your faith. It's about the object of our faith. That is what the true quality of faith is. Not its size, but its object. It's not turning in toward the self. It's turning away from the self toward its object, which we will get to when we get to Hebrews chapter 12 this morning, and Lord willing, by about 12.30 we'll be there, okay? That object. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm teasing, Bill. Um, So Hebrews chapter 11 is talking about faith itself, as that good gift that God gives to us that brings a future reality into the current moment in a substantial way. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the actual material reality itself that's a future promise that faith brings into the current moment. Someone came up to me last week, and I don't remember who it was, but it was a good point. Someone came and said, you know, I think we need to remember that we need to make a distinction between belief and faith, or we've some sort of distinction operative in our mind, and I think that was, a very, that was a point that was well made. This is the distinction that I think is going on in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 here specifically. Belief is a recognition that something is true. Belief is a recognition that that is something true and that it's a promise of God and it's real. Faith is where you walk out onto the tree branch of that commitment and that belief and say, and now, not only do I believe that it's true, but I'm going to walk out onto this tree branch and put everything on the line for it. That's where faith comes into play, I believe. Faith is not just a recognition and a belief that something is, but it's a recognition that the belief that something is and that it's true for me and I'm willing to live by God's grace into that reality in such a way that I'm sitting on the tree branch and believing that it's going to hold me up. That's the distinction. Walking out in faith, onto the reality itself and saying, I put my trust into that fully and completely and recognizing that I'm going to sit on the tree branch of this reality. And here you have the author to the Hebrews saying faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things that, that isn't seen. Faith itself is that means by which it brings these future promises into the current into the current moment. And then we start going on our picture tour within the museum. I wanted to read some of these. and I'm, I'm, This is going to be a shotgun blast, so brace yourself like a mouth to the fire hydrant, I'm afraid. Now, the first one is Abel. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Then you have Enoch, who was all of a sudden not there anymore. Um, Why? Verse 6 Because without faith it is impossible to please him, because whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. That's belief. And here's the faith part as well and believe that he rewards those who seek him. I'm walking out onto the tree branch. Recognizing that I'm going to make this thing that I believe in the central core of my total identity. This is who I am. I'm measured by the truth of what it is that I believe God has revealed in his son. And then he goes on to talk about Noah. Can I read these verses to you from Noah, about Noah? By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, he took heed and constructed an ark for the saving of his household. I had a woman come up to me last week after the class. And, and uh, said, that's a powerful statement, isn't it? Noah constructed an ark out of, as an act of faith to save his family. Right? In an effort to save his family. Here is again that faith being put to work. What was the promise of God that came to Noah. The promise was, I'm going to send a a destroying flood and rain on the whole world, which was absolutely an absurdity. And Noah begins to build an ark, a boat, a floating device in the desert. Why? Well, even at the expense of being jeered by the cultural norms around him, right? Noah's out there sledging away and slapping pitch on the side of a boat with no large body of water nearby because he wanted to save his family. And listen to what the text goes on to say. And by this act of faith, what is the act of faith? He believed that what God said is true. I'm going to act in accord with it in belief of his saving promises for the future. And the author goes on to say that by it, he condemned the world and he became an heir of the righteousness which comes by faith. Again, this is where we need to slow down. He became an heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. What is the heir of righteousness that's in keeping with faith? Righteousness in this context here is the saving work of God on behalf of Noah and his family. He acted in accord with God's word. He moved out in a movement of faith that was absurd given cultural realities and cultural norms But in an attendance to do so, what we see Noah doing is receiving the vindication of God himself. The righteousness of God himself. And what is this righteousness that God gives to Noah? It's the righteousness of God's own saving promises. I told you I was going to save you. And now you see, as you're floating up and down on this large body of water, and there's a lot of mess underneath it. When your family is safe on top of the water, there is the saving vindication of God at work on Noah's behalf because he believed what God said, and he walked onto the ark in an act of faith because of God's saving promises. Why? Because he wanted to save his family. Powerful turn of phrase. Who's the next one? Then it's Abraham. And we, for those of you who've done any study in, in Hebrews before, you know that Abraham is one of the favorite figures for this author to draw, draw make an appeal to anyhow. Back in chapter 6, we see that Abraham is the prototype of a life of faith. And here, I'll just read it to you. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place which he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was to go. And This is a great line that's borrowed right out of Genesis chapter 12. Here God comes and he tells Abraham to go out from the land of Haran into a, into a land that I will show you. And here we see Abraham, a man of some obvious means, picking up all of his family and all the patronage, for those of you who know about this ancient Eastern world, it wasn't just Abraham and his wife and his kids, it was a whole patronage of, of an umbrella of, of um, material wealth and of people who, who lived in their sustenance by Abraham, and they all start moving out, and you wanted to just say, here you see Abraham going, where are you going? I don't really know where I'm going. And, and, and forgive me for appealing to the Hebrew here. It sounds a little geeky. But the Hebrew is fascinating here. He went going and going. Right, It's a, two uses of a verb there to just say, what, what was Abraham's identity now? His identity was a going one. He was just going. Why? Because God had promised him something. He had promised him an inheritance, and he went out. And here's the power of this text, right, and of Abraham as a model of faith, as, an, as someone who models faith for us. Nine, Verse 9, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. I, I don't want to chase this rabbit too far. Abraham always lived in a tent. Lot lived in a house with beams and walls and a door fascinating actually. Lot's made out of that in the narrative of Genesis. Here's Abraham out in his tent because Abraham is framed in his whole existence by the promise of God toward his future inheritance. And here is Lot in the city center with a house that has beams and wood and doors and much more stable. That's not Abraham. Abraham's living in tents. Why? Verse 10. Because he looked forward to the city who has foundations, whose builder And maker is God. He was willing to live in tents. He was willing to be dispossessed of his possessions for the sake of the fact that God had promised him a future city that was more beautiful and more powerful and more attractive than the city that he had known before. Verse 13 talks about Abraham and Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received what was promised. Now, that's a phrase that you've probably read many times, but it just sits on me in a heavy way. Abraham left everything because God had promised him something. And Abraham died not having received the promise. This is at the heart of what Hebrews is about, for those of you who were here last week and remember We're dealing with a second generation group of Christians um, where the edges of their faith had maybe worn off a bit or at least become a little bit more dulled. And now here you have um, the author to the Hebrews saying, this is a faith that's true and it's real and it's a faith that's worth dying for. And here you have a dying for kind of faith that's being called for by the author to the Hebrews, and he's using Abraham as a model. Why? Because Abraham never received in a tangible way all the promises that God had made to him. So what is, what is the author to the Hebrews doing here? Well, it's a big fancy theological term. He's forcing Abraham to locate his, the inheritance of his promises in an eschatological future. In a future moment. If we can whittle down, I think, part of the Christian life, or at least a central aim and matter of the Christian life, as we see all throughout the Bible, especially in the book of Psalms, especially in Paul, especially in, I don't know, all of it is um, future promises. Faith is measured by hope in future promises that aren't tangible now. Abraham died not having received that which was promised, but he died in full assurance that he would receive that which was promised. That's a fascinating thing, isn't it, to look at Abraham, the great owner of land, the great patriarch of the ancient Near East, and by the time that he dies, the only plot of land that he owns anymore is the burial plot where he buries his wife, Sarah. It's quite astounding. Why? because he believed in the future promises of God. Verse 16. But as it is, they desired a better country. They desired a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he's prepared for them a city. (laughs) He's not ashamed to be called their God. They're marked by those who recognize that God has made a promise and that God... For God to be God has to uphold the promises of his word. God cannot deny himself. And his promises and his word are actually ingredient to God's own identity. We can't separate the one from the other and say, there's God's word and there's God. God and his word are one and the same. And for God to make a promise according to his word is for God to put his own self on the line. I'm giving you myself here. I'm promising you these things, a future reward, a future inheritance based on faith. And I'm promising it on my own word, on my very self. Now here's Abraham saying, that's good enough for me. I want a heavenly city, a future place, a future realm. Well, he goes from Abraham and then he gets to Jacob and Isaac and he gets to Moses by faith, Moses, verse 23, when he was born, he was hid for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. Now, these are fascinating sort of interpretations. That's not an exodus, but here, here it is here. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. So they acted in, according to, in, in accord with faith. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share the ill treatment with the people of God And here's a phrase that I heard a lot growing up. Rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin for a season. So so here he is, and and I I will use the same line with my own children. I know I will, right? Um, The fleeting pleasures of sin, or the pleasures of sin for a season. Moses says, I will refuse to be called Pharaoh's daughter with all the privileges that come along with that. Um, because I believe in the promises of God himself. Listen to the way in which the verse is phrased, the next one. He considered abuse suffered for the Christ greater than the wealth of the treasures of Egypt. He considered the abuse suffered for Jesus greater than the wealth of all the wealth that Egypt had to offer, and at that time in the ancient Eastern world, all the wealth of the world was located in Egypt primarily. That was the center of ancient Eastern wealth. And here you have Moses saying, I'll deny that and I'll suffer abuse. For whom? Isn't this fascinating? For Christ, right? For the Messiah, for the, for the promised one. For the future one that Moses never met. It's fascinating, isn't it? When you go to the Mount of Transfiguration, we can see Moses having an interaction with the Messiah that he actually anticipated all, all the way back then. You go on and you see Rahab. By faith, verse 31, Rahab the harlot did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had, been given, because she had given friendly welcome to the spies. So here's Rahab. Um, who didn't perish? Willing to endure present peril, Rahab was because of a future promise. With accord with these spies, I mean, it's, it's fascinating pictures and stories here. Rahab—I mean, it's not necessarily someone you'd invite over for Thanksgiving, right? It's Rahab and uh, Moses and Abraham, Jacob and Isaac, Abraham and Enoch and Noah—all marked by. Common core of faith, but it's not just sort of abstract belief faith. It's a faith that was risky, a faith that was willing to say, I recognize that my identity at its core will be shaped from beginning to end by the future saving promises of God despite the current situation. A recognition that even if I never tangibly hold the promises of God in my hand now, I will go to the graveside and I will say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The resurrection of the dead is everything. It's everything. A hope for the future promises of God, that is everything in, in, in the Christian existence. I mean, this is why the Apostle Paul, I believe, says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, which is the first fruits of the final resurrection, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then we're of all people most miserable. Um, in other words, Christianity is gutted at its core without a belief in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Now we're some, I don't know, we're some sort of social organization that does good in society. All those things are fine and well, but it's not Christianity. I mean, Christianity at its core is a confession that God has made promises to us that he is made good on by the death and resurrection of his son. And in the resurrection of his son, we're assured of that future resurrection of the dead as well. If not, let's go to Vegas next week, right? Let's call it off. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then we are of all people to be most pitied, Paul says. And that's what holds this picture gallery of faith together. They believed in the future promises of God, despite the reality of their current suffering. Let me just read to you this last part. This is, I mean, this is about as good as it gets in Hebrews, really in the New Testament. Verse 32, And what more shall I say? Here's the preacher running out of time, knowing that he needs to land the plane. What more shall I say? Time fails me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, oh, and by the way, all the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, received promises, stopped the mouths of lions... Quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection, referring to probably the widows that Elijah and Elisha brought their children back. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and scourging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, the tradition that comes from some apocryphal literature is that Isaiah, under the reign of King Manasseh, who was not a nice man, during the reign of King Manasseh, Isaiah hid out in the hollow of a tree, and they came and they cut down tree and Isaiah in one fell swoop. That's the tradition. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheeps and goats destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, and as if the author can't hold himself back, he says, men of whom the world was not even worthy. Wandering over deserts and mountains and dens and in caves of the earth. Verse 39. And just so you remember the point, the author is saying, and all these, though well attested by their faith did not receive what was promised. Since God had foreseen something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They didn't receive the promise. They looked forward to it in the future. All right, let me just stop and reflect with you for a few seconds before we get into chapter 12. And I know our time's running. When you read stuff like this, I, I, and again, this, this... I I like chapters like this. I like Fox's Book of Martyrs. I like Christian biography. And I encourage all of you, if that's not been a part of your life, pull out a Christian biography and and read it. Um, uh, Darren McCulloch on Cranmer. That's kind of big and thick. But um, uh, but what's a better one? That might be, I don't know, Borden of Yale or Henry Martin. I mean, there's so many great figures. I I went through a period in my sort of early 20s where I just spent a lot of time in in the... um, the Memoirs and Remains, which is always a funny way of, of a book. The Memoirs and Remains of Robert Murray McShane, uh, who was a Scottish Presbyterian minister um, who uh, ministered in Dundee, Scotland. Went Actually, when we lived there, went over the, 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 river, the, the, uh, the river there to find McShane's grave, which was all this ivy had grown over. I had to sort of pull it back, and there it was, the, the real remains of Robert Murray McShane. Um, reading these these figures from the past who were extraordinarily extraordinary exemplars of the of the Christian faith those who recognize that you know in the words of Martin Luther let goods and kindreds go this mortal life also a recognition that you know there is a better place And we are just pilgrims in this world that are um, indigenous. We are indigenous. We live in a culture. We live and breathe here. We live with one another. We work with people. We're not called to be evacuated out of this world. We live in this world, but we're at the same time equally pilgrims, moving into another place and another time recognizing this is not our final stopping point. So, I I encourage you to read Christian Biography if if that's not something you've ever done before. The the Journal of David Brainerd, um, Jonathan Edwards' Biography by George Morrison, just a gem of a book. There's a lot of great stuff out there. But if you're like me, every once in a while you can read these things and go, oh my gosh, you know, it's like this seems so far removed from my sort of middle class life, right? I mean, what are the problems of my life? Well, I'm not sitting here like Jonathan Edwards wondering if the Indians are going to kill me as I go on my foreign you know, min, uh, missionary crusade out west, which out west is like you know, um, Indiana, <laughs> really out west, but you know, out west to go, to go minister to the missionaries. Am I going to come back alive or not? Or something like John Patton's famous Christian missionary biography, I'm going to go to Papua New Guinea, and maybe the cannibals are going to eat me there, right? I mean, that's not my life. The only cannibals who might eat me are 10, 8, and 5, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you can read these things and think, it seems so far removed from my normal sort of quotidian, everyday life, where I'm dealing with, you know, what sales are on at Publix this week, and getting kids to the YMCA pool, swimming stuff, and doing baseball practice on Tuesday night, and the corner, it's kind of normal stuff that we deal with. And the suffering that we have, it just seems to be normal human suffering, right? It's this, and it's not that that's real. Um, I, 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 I reflect on this, I think about this, and I do believe that what we deal with really is a difference in degree, not necessarily kind, it's a difference in degree, the sort of suffering and the struggles that you read in some of these biographies when we talk about martyrdom, right? But it's a difference in degree, not necessarily kind, because what we're all pressed on in any sphere, and the fact that we live normal, everyday, uneventful lives may make it more difficult, actually. right? Because Boko Haram's not coming around the corner. We're not worried about that. I had a student... In my class um, two years ago at Beeson, who was a missionary in Niger, and and moved up into Nigeria as well, they had 24-hour notice to get their family out because Boko Haram was coming around the corner, and they had to get. I, mean, I I've never had that experience. 24 hours, get your family out now. They're on their way. Now, I have never had an experience like that. I you know the, the, I don't live in that way. Um, and in some sense, I think those experiences probably make life more acute. We're called on, we run the danger, frankly, of lacking in self-reflection and critical awareness because we're just living in day-to-day life. And I think that what we're called on here is to recognize we live in cultural realities as well, where cultural norms are making their promises to us again and again, and we're having to fight that battle too. Am I gonna believe that those promises are true, or am I gonna believe that the promises of God are true? And mark and and shape our lives in a critical reflective way again and again in that light. You know, Calvin, who I mentioned him last week, you know, Calvin could be a little bit, you know, rough around the corners, and frankly, anybody who lived in the 16th century had to be. That was a difficult time. You know, I read a letter of Calvin that he wrote to a friend describing his weekend struggle with some kidney stones. You're like, who writes that stuff? It's just horrible. The writhing in pain and the descriptive, it was just lurid detail. I mean, here's, so Calvin's a difficult guy but you know in Calvin's little section in the, in the institutes on the Christian life Calvin says this God and this is what Hebrews says in the next chapter we won't get to it God disciplines his children well what does that mean? I think it's getting right into this tension that we feel that we're talking about in our normal day existence God brings struggle and I hate to say this because I don't want anymore right? and you don't either But the truth of the matter is God brings struggle and trial and difficulty into our lives for a very serious and acute purpose. And that is to show us that this world is not all that there is. And Calvin doesn't just leave that in the abstract, by the way, he gets really practical about it. Calvin says, and that's why some of you might have a difficult marriage. Or kids who are unruly, right? And don't do what you want them to do as much as you discipline them. Or, and he lists all these other things. Because you know what happens when you're in a difficult marriage? Or you've got kids that aren't the kids that you want them to be? Or you're in a job that's frustrating you every day of your life? What all those things scream to you? Is that the promises that God has have offered to you in their totality are not in your hands right now. But they will be. And God gives us these things in our lives to remind us that this world is not our home in the old spiritual, but we are just a passing through. Um, He goes into Hebrews chapter 12. I do want to finish because this is is the good news. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this is now athletic language. We're in a big arena. This is all these witnesses are around us. It's a great hall of faith. Let us lay aside all the weight. I can learn to hear that. And the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Now, lots of debate here what it means, the sin. It's not a sin or just general sin. Lay aside the sin that so easily besets you. Now, you know, lots of debate on this. Some people think it's just a general description of sin for you to take into account what your particular struggle is. My sense is contextually that the sin that's being addressed particularly here is the sin of unbelief. The continual wrestling with the fact that what God said is true and that it's true for me. That particular matter that he's dealing with in the whole previous chapter. But whatever it is, he's calling us to critical self-reflection. But he's, and this is crucial, but not a critical self reflection that remains turned in in an internal conversation, but one that goes toward a critical self reflection and recognition of who we are and our humanness, and then it pushes us outward again. The second verse, maybe one of my favorite verses in, in the Bible. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. How do we persevere? Because He's calling us to perseverance, to endurance to a belief in a faith that recognizes that God's promises are true, that they're true all the way to the end, as we heard this morning from Canon Schneider, from childhood to the deathbed. How do we have that kind of persevering faith? Not by turning in, but by looking away to Jesus, who's the author, he's the generator of your faith, and he is the perfecter of your faith. We are looking to him. You hear this talk around Advent a lot, and it's good talk, that uh, the life of faith, is the Christian life, is a life of repentance. It's an again and again reality. We don't just repent once. We live lives of repentance. And the dynamic that I think you feel here in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is exhibit A of what that life of repentance looks like. A looking into the mirror, honest self-appraisal of who we are, the weight that we have that needs to be shed, the sin that besets us of unbelief. And when we look into the mirror, we're turned out again looking to Jesus, who's the author and the guarantor and the perfecter of our faith. Recognizing that he's the one that for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. What do we see when we look at Jesus? We see the one who has from the beginning to the end lived in the full panoply of the promises of God. He's come into the world. He obeyed the command and the will of God. It took him to the desperation of the cross. The promises are not mine. And where is he now? Ascension Sunday is coming soon. Where is he now? He is seated at the right hand of the Father, enjoying all the promises of God because he believed that God's promises were true. So we look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. What does the life of repentance look like? What's the life of faith look like? It looks like looking at ourselves which then forces us to turn outward and look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We live normal day lives, most of us, right, with the normal kind of problems that come with normal day life. But even in that, even in the normal existence, we're called to that kind of reflection to say, you know what, this world is not our home, we're just passing through. So Father, I pray that you'll help us as we think through um, Hebrews chapter 11 and 12, and the reality, Lord, that all the promises that you've promised us are true, and that faith makes them a part of our current existence, but we don't have them yet. We live in this world, a world marked by sin and decay. Lord, we live in our own bodies that are marked by sin and decay. So in the middle of this race that we run, in this hard race, it's a marathon, Lord. It's isn't a sprint, it's a long marathon, and We want to persevere, we want to endure, we want to believe, Lord, to the end. I pray, Lord, by the power of your Spirit that you would force us and draw us in the words of the old hymn to turn our eyes upon Jesus and to look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and your grace. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.